0: Hello, and welcome back to the TES News Podcast. I'm TES Podcast Producer Joshua Morris, and you're listening to the second of two special policy paper episodes this week. This week saw the release of the long-awaited Schools White Paper, the first in six years, and the first of two major announcements from the Department of Education this week, followed shortly thereafter by the Green Paper, following the government's long-running SEND review. We have loads of coverage on the website to help you digest some of the key policies and targets in these papers. If you're interested in getting some insight from some sector experts, then we've got just the thing for you. Earlier this week, I was at Firth Park Academy recording the first of our new Education Insights Expert Panel series with our editor, John Severs. He spoke to Rebecca Boomer-Clark, Catherine Payne, Caroline Wright and Professor Becky Francis about the impact of COVID and the school's white paper. Keep an eye out for that one on our website for more details soon. For the podcast this week, to help get across all of our coverage of the white and green papers, we're running two special episodes, one with our analysis team and one with our news team. You're listening to the analysis special, where senior editors Dan Worth and Gronya Hallahan sat down to discuss the big analysis features to come out of the papers.
1: Hi, gronya. Welcome to this special podcast that Josh has just introduced us to. Great to be chatting with you. Busy week in education, two policy papers in one week. Pretty um, unprecedented in a way. How have you found it?
2: Yes, it's definitely kept us busy. Um, Yeah, a bit like when you're waiting for a bus to come and then two turn up at once. But those buses that come weren't quite the ones you were hoping for. And it's not that lovely double-decker. It's the disappointing buses. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, rail replacement buses or something like that. Well, obviously some people have that view, but let's be fair, some some were a little bit more positive on the papers. So the school's white paper, let's deal with that first. That came out on Monday, uh, included some notable uh, proposals, including the requirement for schools to be open for a minimum of 32.5 hours a week. There was a parent pledge around ensuring you know children hitting certain targets in certain subjects. There was a requirement to want to improve GCSE grade outcomes for English, Language and Maths. In boosting key, key stage two outcomes, much more around the push for further academisation of the school sector. So lots of things to think about. Um, overall, before we dive into the, the sort of responses and reaction we've had, what was your top line view on it?
2: You know, when I've got a really busy day, I make a list of all the things that I need to do and so I can tick it off. And I normally start off with a few things I've already done, just so when I come to tick it off, I can tick it off a few things and feel really productive. And I feel like the white paper had a real vibe of that about it in that there's quite a quite a bit on there, for example, the school day, the £30,000 um, starting salary, that they've already talked about, already announced, and most schools already do. The parent pledge, most schools have that in place already. It had a real strong, oh, I'm going to tick that off, even though I know I already do it, kind of a uh, sense to the paper. That was my first takeaway when I was reading through it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, So we asked a lot of people in the sector, sort of key um, people ranging from Matt's CEOs to people leading big organizations in education to sort of policy experts to go through the the various proposals. We're going to talk through some of them now. Um, The first one I'm going to quickly mention is a piece by Rebecca Boomer-Clark, who is the CEO of the AET uh, Multi-Academy Trust who sort of touched on something she did like coming out of the white paper. For example, the um, she thought the fact there was a big focus on trying to increase the move to academization. unsurprisingly, you might say, she was in favour of that, but said it would help bring more sort of consistency to the system, which I think, you know, there's a, there's a good logic there. She also said that she thought she liked those, or she was called them bold ambitions to improve key stage two and key stage four outcomes. And in a way to say, you know, that's what people in education all want to do anyway. Like it doesn't need to be in a white paper, but what's the, why is it a bad thing to put that in policy? Which again, you know, you can see the logic in that. And the last thing I'll mention that she touched on was um, maybe a small point, but an, an, a good one, was that there was the re-endowment of the Education Endowment Foundation with at least 100 million pounds, which will help maintain their sort of position in the sector, which I expect other people, if they were aware of that, probably thought that was a good thing. And if they weren't aware, probably will also be thinking, oh, didn't know about that, but that does sound like a good thing. So I think you know that piece from Rebecca really worth reading, has a lot to say. Would you agree?
2: Absolutely. I think you know I've got a lot of time for the EEF. I think they do lots of really great things, and most people would be very happy that they're they're continued to be supportive in this paper.
1: Absolutely. And another person who was sort of broadly on board, I'd say, with the white paper was uh, Leora Craddis, who is the CEO of the Confederation of School Trusts. Again, given the white paper and the government, unsurprisingly, sort of maintained its desire for more trusts that it believes schools. 10 schools in a trust is where you start to hit these you know efficiencies and sort of you can really you know drive improvements across schools they made a big play on that and she sort of was was behind that she did make one sort of caveat of concern where she said she didn't like the element that there was the proposal that schools could ask the government to leave a trust which i suppose would sort of change the dynamic between a trust and the school if there was always that that sense you could just walk away at any moment but broadly she was positive again had a chance to read that piece. What what do you think of what she said?
2: Yes, I mean, she Leora, was really positive. I think about the the paper as a whole, and um, I think her concern about the about whether or not you can leave a trust. This is the kind of detail that that paper is lacking at the moment, and I think will be very interesting to see how things change as we find out more about how this move to further ac- academisation academisation will will happen and work.
1: Yeah, it is an annoying word to keep saying, isn't it? But again, another person who who liked the move to include more on on uh, academisation was was Sam Friedman, who one of our uh, fantastic policy experts, who wrote a really great piece as ever on this paper on the white paper for us. Um, and as I say, he he was sort of in favour of um, of a lot of what they put forward on on sort of maths and improving that, and, and amusingly sort of said he probably has a a um, you know a, a declare an interest on that because he actually wrote a paper on some of these very points for the Institute for Government a few months ago and. Felt a lot of what they put forward was what he had put forward as well, so it's really worth reading his detailed piece. And we'll, but we won't touch on the Matt stuff so much in what he spoke about. We'll talk of some of the other things. Which, let's be honest, as you alluded at the start, there was a lot in this paper that people were kind of very underwhelmed by, or kind of were a bit so what about? Um, One of which was this thirty-two point five hours teaching week. Sorry, not teaching week, just just school week, um, which. I think it's 85 to 90% of schools already do that, actually. So yes, it's going to pick up some, but is it really that big a policy? Sam sort of alludes to suggest not really. And the parent pledge, again, as you said, a bit, a bit so what? Like, you know, what does that really mean? Um, yeah, again, you know, you sort of touched on that. What, what do you think of that from what Sam was saying?
2: I loved Sam's description of the uh, the commitment to the 32 and a half hour week as being a pale shadow of Kevin Collins's funded 30 minutes extra i mean this is what we're getting versus what we could have had here's what you could have won a properly fully funded mm. 30 minute extra part of your day with te- proper teaching and extracurricular activities what you've got is most of schools already o- offered this already those that don't are within 15 minutes of it and you know sam hit the nail on the head by saying it's a pale shadow of what mm. what it could have been um and also i think some of Sam's praise for the piece was about what wasn't in there. You know, at least it wasn't as bad as Theresa May's education green paper, for example. You know, we haven't got grammar schools coming back. So mm. it's um I think it's on the whole quite disappointing. And the the parent pledge, like Sam says, most schools, if you weren't doing this, you wouldn't do well on your offset anyway. Most schools do offer that. And it's kind of patronising to to teachers and schools in that insinuation that they're not doing it already. I don't think that helps the relationship between schools and parents by sort of insinuating it's not something that's already in place.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, it's a good point. Um, And and also, you, you touched on this, but the thing about here's what you could have won, you know, here's what you could have done if we had more money. Well, actually, Sam's sort of first line of his analysis of the document is it reads like a lengthy way of saying, we have no money. Um, which I thought was quite amusing. And, and it's a point that our editor, John Severs, sort of made in his, cause he interviewed Nadim Zahawi on Sunday before the white paper. Um, and he sort of spoke to him about them, what they're putting forward and, and said he didn't feel there was the need for more money because what they were asked, what they were trying to achieve could be done without any more funding to you know, do what, what they believe they need to do. Of course, he's going to say that, isn't He's in the government. But it seems clear that actually money would have been helpful to help teachers to you know teach for longer because let's let's be honest we're coming out of the pandemic we hope um there's a lot to catch up on so a, a longer school day funded would have been a good way to do that but we're not doing that
2: I had five separate teachers send me that they like, screenshot that part of the article and sent it to me like what is he on about <laughs> has he been to <laughs> a school really, the, the the fury in the response to the idea that schools have got enough already when they're being told mm. again and again we've got we've got deficit in our budget we need to make cuts we need to restructure we need to get rid of teaching assistants we need to cut back on our, like the um, number of classes we're offering we need to reduce we need to increase class sizes at A level because you know we can't afford to run this and to say that schools have got enough money already, it's, I, I think it's a really poor, poor attitude to take. I, I understand that there's not money left, but don't try and pretend it's because schools have got enough already, because that's simply not true.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, on the subject of, of money, I suppose, um, moving to another piece that was written for us about the white paper by Natalie Pereira, who is the chief executive of the Education Poly- Policy Institute. Um, so again, another great person to have writing and offering their views and their insights on the paper. And, and she raised the point that she was very sort of disappointed to see that for all the white papers, sort of focus on, on what schools can do, which, you know, to a point, of course, is completely understandable. It kind of completely then ignored the wider social issues that, of course, have a massive impact on educational outcomes and how schools can do their jobs, can hit their targets, can do all the new initiatives or new, you know, targets they've been set. We know child poverty is a problem and we know it has a massive impact on education. So I thought she was absolutely right to raise this. And again, very. you you know, just there is no other word for it but to say, you know, we cannot pretend that schools are bubbles in isolation from society where a child turning up who's hungry, who's not got the right access to equipment at home, who doesn't have good parental engagement, whatever it might be, that has an effect. And yet, if we're not going to address those issues, all the good ideas you might put into a school will be undermined massively by that.
2: No, Natalie's absolutely right. And reading the white paper, you'd almost be able to imagine that, you know, these ideas about how we're going to level up this and and how this is going to be fixed were just, simple matters of ironing out the creases. They don't seem to really think about the fundamental reasons why poverty is being caused in the first place. Mm. It had some mention of the education investment areas that we already knew about from the white paper on levelling up, but no real actual detail, the operational detail, how are we actually going to solve these problems that then lead to issues in school and to a difference in performance between advantaged and disadvantaged students. There's nothing on that. There's no no Mm. guidance at all. No extra help for schools. And the early years, the early years are so important. And it's just wholly disappointing that that's not being addressed when that really should be our our big move. It's a a, a shame on us that as a society we've got to this point and we're still not addressing the issues that poverty causes in education.
0: Mm,
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And your your reference to early years there, that was something else that um, people touched on in in, in various Places saying there was a real lack of focus on early years, which you know is baffling, and something that I, the more I discover about education, the more I do find incredibly baffling because it seems like you get the foundations right, everything blossoms from there. But we seem not to have this view. But let's let's not go into that because I think we'd be here for too long. um The final thing then actually is a piece written by one gronya Hallahan that we're going to talk about on the white paper, which is there was as we've alluded or mentioned there was this reference to increasing the average GCSE grade in English language and maths by 0.5 grade from 4.5 to 5 by 2030 again sounds like a reasonably sort of you know pop- popular type policy to make people show you're ambitious and you want to get you know the kids smarter and they claimed it would make an additional 34 billion pounds to the economy a year by when that started happening uh, which is something I've looked into And in the, the mathematics of that are a little bit creative um, that's in another article on the site about fact-checking the document but on this proposal, you went and talked to some experts, some um, some teachers, some policy people, some statisticians. What do you think? What's going to happen? Is it is it realistic?
2: It, I mean, it's entirely realistic because, of course, if they want to make this target happen, they can adjust the grade boundaries and ensure that they they do hit it. Because essentially, mm. grade boundaries are something that we 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 adjust, we alter. We know that in twenty twenty two this year, this year's exams, they're going to be altered that year to make sure that more students will will benefit from it because we don't want them to have a big dip after the inflated Mm. grades from the teacher assessed grades last year. So we know it's possible. If it's possible, will it actually reflect an increase in standards? Ah, now that's where it's a little bit tricky. So some of the head teachers that I spoke to pointed out that um, if you have an increased average score, that doesn't mean that those students who've been missing out on getting a getting a th- getting a four, getting a five previously, there's now more of those students getting that that grade. It could mm. just mean we've got a higher higher movement at the top end. So if you really wanted to have a measure that looked at increasing social mobility and making sure and that's what it says it wants to do that it wants to make you know more more um, opportunities for young people better options for their further education if you really want to do that then you've got to look at those who aren't passing in the first place we have a third third of students don't pass english and maths like if you wanted to have a measure to look at to address that address that. The having an, a, a target about an average grade doesn't then look at those that are disadvantaged, doesn't look at those that are currently not achieving the past standard, the past grade that's, you know, a good pass, which is the grade four. Mm. It's it's a nonsense target really. And it ties into this the other target we've also mentioned today about the 90% um, expected standard at key stage two. And the point was made that those students are currently in year three and they've already Mm. had two years of disrupted learning at school and they're the ones that are meant to make this huge leap by the time they get to their year six sats like that's quite unlikely and then to make this leap again when they get to their GCSEs I feel like we're looking at the wrong things and trying to measure measure parts of the the machine that aren't the ones that are telling us where things are going wrong looking at average grades targeting students that have had the most disruption generally wasn't wasn't good feedback on those targets.
1: Yes, that, that point about it being the year threes were the ones that will sort of hit these points first or, or, or throughout the years ahead. And given they've just had all this disruption, we're not only sort of not giving, doing, doing a huge amount to help them or we haven't followed the advice of the person who was put in charge, you know, so Kevin Collins, to say this is how we could help them, we're actually giving them higher targets than, than previous cohorts have had, which, you know, when you really start to get your head around, it does start to get a little, a little bit, um, make your head hurt. But yes, your piece was also excellent. Lots of good insights. And, you know, thank you to everyone who wrote all these articles during the week. We appreciate It's a busy week for everyone in education. So we do appreciate the sort of, you know, people giving their time and expertise. And you know, I really recommend delving into some of these pieces, having a read. It certainly helps you feel more informed about what what all this means to help sort of join things together. You see how one thing links to another, links to another, and that these things are not actually don't come out of thin air. They all link to past policies or they link to another, you know, what the government wants to do here. They, they bring this in to kind of justify that. And Lots of moving parts. I think it's a really good way to feel informed about what's going on. Um, So that's one policy paper of the week, given some some coverage. But then obviously, literally the next day, we had the second one, which was a green paper this time, rather than a white paper. So green paper, for those unfamiliar with um, Westminster uh, parlance, is the ones that come before a white paper. They're They're a little bit more sort of up in the air in that they open to consultation. A lot more changes can happen at the white paper stage. Now, we had some interesting again, views given to us on this. Um, first one we're going to touch on was by Professor Rob Webster, who wrote a very long and um, very interesting piece sort of putting some of the context around this and the issue of SEND and how badly it's been sort of managed over the past. And the fact that this Green Paper did sort of acknowledge that and did sort of recognise that. And that was important, he thought, to sort of show there was a there was a sense of, you know, people had they'd heard the criticism. But I wouldn't say he was... Hugely positive on what they're proposing, but he was also not negative on it. Do you think that's fair to say?
2: I think that's really fair to say. I think you know, it's the it's the like these ideas they sound reasonable. The attitude, the tone was right in that you know, parents and teachers who work with um, children with special educational needs will certainly feel feel heard and feel and feel seen reading it because it acknowledges mm. the journey that they've they've had and the the tough experiences that you you have to go through when you've got a child with special educational needs in the education system. But all of these ideas require money. And that's the, you know, mm. how, how are they actually going to follow this through? How is it actually going to be executed? Because that's the, that's the real key to it, isn't it? Mm,
1: absolutely. And we should mention just some of the things that Rob did sort of highlight as, as thinking, you know, worthy of, of inclusion that he, he saw and thought these are potentially good was The fact that there's proposals for new legislation on national SEND standards, which could definitely be helpful to so schools know what they have to achieve in the eyes of government. um, For digital EHCP plans, which I think was an interesting point. I wasn't aware they couldn't be digital. I mean, it might be worth sort of delving into that a bit more. So we might be able to look at, you know, at TES and see what does that mean. But again, suggests maybe more efficiency into the system. Um, And a new National SENCO award with national professional qualification standard, which I also thought was very notable because. That could at least again bring that level of consistency of best practice of um, you know expertise and professionalism to a role that clearly is really important
2: oh, so important, you know you can't have a school without a head teacher and a senko there's the two roles that you must have in every single school you know it's so mm. important and um what Rob was pointing out in his piece was how inconsistent things are at the moment, and hopefully by bringing in this these standards, it will mean that the experience that you have. In a school when you've got a pupil with send will now be less less inconsistent it will be more yeah just more standardized across the country and it's really important that we don't have this uh too much local discretion that was one of the phrases i think that he used like the and we need to have that fairness and consistency in the decision making it's so important
1: yeah yeah well and and Another person who was sort of getting actually quite positive in a way on, on the on the green paper on SEND was Sam Friedman, again, for his policy expertise to bear on this one. Um, and actually, I'm going to touch on something he talked about on the actual the, the alternative provision side of things, which is another part of this paper. And he sort of noted that actually this is a part of education that often gets overlooked, both within education and in wider society. But actually, he thought some of the proposals on that were, were, were worth bringing up, you know, like more transparency on pupils moving in and out of AP. Integrating ap to within send systems more. Again, these are sort of big, sort of top level sort of concepts. But again, the, the devils in the detail. But the fact that he sort of that was being re- he was highlighted, was being recognised and talked about was important. And he also said the need the was recon- the recognition there is a need for a review of unregistered provision. Um, so again, I just thought that was interesting that, that you know these are people you know Sam Freeman, particularly you know policy expert. He spent his life, he previously worked in the DFE. He knows what it takes to put together these kind of things. And here he is sort of picking out some of these bits, and saying, That's notable that they've put that in you. That could lead to, to good changes, which I thought was quite refreshing actually to hear.
2: The thing with AP is it's so easily overlooked because it, it's about so few, such a few number of mm. pupils that a lot of people don't, even if you work in education, you don't really know, don't necessarily know about AP and how AP works. Um, and we know from the times that we've had to look into the data about various different groups that once you start looking at AP, it becomes a little bit like a quagmire. Like, and and what's this, and how does this relate to that? And oh, there's too few numbers for that, so it's not recorded. And all of this kind of stuff. It's it sounds dull. It doesn't sound exciting. It's not very like snazzy, but mm. it's really important and it really matters to the students who actually we should be focusing on the most because they require more care and attention than other students. And so it's a it's it's a good thing that they are focusing on these students because they badly need it.
1: Yeah, as you say, this isn't going to grab the 32.5 hour headline like like the start of the White paper did on all, the, on all the nationals or whatever it might be. But these are actually, sometimes it's these things that make the biggest difference, but no one, you know, yeah, they won't grab the headlines, but actually they matter massively. So let's hope that some of those positive things continue, that the consultation, you know, people feedback with them and say, yeah, we like this idea and we believe this could do this and this is how this should be implemented. Who knows where we'll be in? Well, let's hope sooner rather than later. Um, and, and the final piece we're going to talk about on the SEND um, green paper was from Simon Knight, who is the um, head teacher of Frank Wise School in Oxfordshire, which is a special school. So he's really well placed to sort of see some of the issues in this sector, um, and particularly how they affect you know pupils in, in settings like his. And again, he, like Rob, raised the point that he was pleased to see the green paper. In his words, if not quite apologising for the failings of the system, at least recognising them. Um, which again i thought was important because if there is this lack of trust or if there has been a dwindling of trust people like that in in these roles to be saying it it's probably going to be echoed by others that seems like an important first step as we've touched on
2: and i think a lot of the issues that we have with special needs schools are because the the roles and where where the 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 responsibility of the special needs school sort of overlaps with social work overlaps with healthcare, and it's it's making sure that that the expectations and accountability is is really explicit and really and we, we sort mm. out those problems because again, very similar to AP, these students are the ones that need more, more care, more attention. And it's really important that we have that clarity and as to who should be doing what and when and who who can we trace this back and say, right, that was your job to do.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, and I should say, Simon, you know, he he then goes on into some more details of what he thought was good to see. And there was you know, plans to potentially boost capacity in the system, which is something he's written about before for us and the problems there around hopefully improving the funding system. he also mentioned the the send standards plan or proposal, which again he he welcomed um and and they' sort of the improved cross-sector approach, you know, talking about, the, you know, which is in the paper talks about, you know, doing, doing, making sure there's better understanding between, I guess, between schools and local authorities, and, you know, healthcare services, which, which again is a good ambition, isn't it? I'm sure that's been said before, but at least maybe there's a, a re, well, he, I think he used the word there's a chance to restart here, which I thought was good, you know, like let's, let's draw a line under some where things have gone wrong start to build forward i think it sounds to me like the key here though is that this thing doesn't drag on and on i think it was robert possibly sam who also said like you know they've had plenty of time to be doing this we know we've had a pandemic of course but you know time is always of the essence so let's let's move on um with what we're doing but again simon's piece really good really insightful if you're interested in this sector if you want to know more about it if you've sort of vaguely picked up on the 10 the paper but we're a bit like what does it exactly mean certainly simon certainly rob's piece sam's piece too some really good insights to come from that. We should, we might have more pieces to come on this as well. So again, it definitely worth keeping on the TES website today, this on the Friday and uh, going forward, because there's no question that, you know, what these documents have put forward is going to run and run.
2: And if you've got a new teacher in your department or an uh, ECT uh, or somebody who you think mm. might need something that's easy to digest, this is a really good starting place. I think when you're, when you're looking at that 63-page document and trying to unpick exactly what it means, especially when you're new to education, it's it's quite tricky, so forward these on, forward these pieces on to people that you know are interested in this, but might not want to read the whole policy paper.
1: Definitely, definitely some good advice. Well, Grania, thank you for chatting to me. As I thank you again to all our contributors who've helped us out this week with the pieces, um, really insightful, and we hope you've enjoyed us to the podcast. And we'll see you next week.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this special Tez news podcast, which featured senior editors Dan Worth and Gronya Hallahan. Please make sure to follow them on Twitter for more coverage. That'd be at Dan Worth and at Hey Mrs. Hallahan. And a quick plug again for that Education Insights expert panel with our editor John Severs coming up soon. So please keep an eye out for that one on our website. And a reminder that this is one of two special episodes this week, so if you've not had a chance to listen to the other one, make sure to look out for that. As always, thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us again next week.